Welcome to Cancer Conference Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In January of 2007, for the fourth consecutive year, ASCO, in conjunction with ASTRO, SSO, and the AGA Institute, again held their Gastrointestinal Cancer Symposium. I met with three clinical investigators focusing on GI cancer for their take on the presentations and posters presented at the meeting. First, the many important papers on colorectal cancer, and then the remaining topics. To begin, Dr. Richard Goldberg discusses the major colorectal cancer oral plenary session that he chaired, beginning with a presentation by Eric von Kutzum on a fascinating trial focusing on rash and response in anti-EGFR therapy. This was a study called the Everest trial conducted in Europe in which patients were given cetuximab and These were all patients who had metastatic colorectal cancer. They were given standard doses, plus they were given a renotecan, 180 milligrams per meter squared every other week. They started out with a standard loading dose, and patients were evaluated for skin reactions after they had gotten a couple of doses of the cetuximab. And those who had skin reactions of greater than grade one continued on their assigned dose. Those patients who didn't have skin reactions were then randomized to stay on the original dose or to be dose escalated in increments of 50 milligrams per meter squared every week to a grade 2 or greater toxicity. And the maximum dose would be 500 milligrams per meter squared. Now, had this ever been done before? Not that I'm aware of. So this was an attempt to say if the skin is a marker of toxicity, because cetuximab affects epidermal growth factor receptor in skin, is it an accurate marker of tumor response as well? With the hypothesis being that if you drive patients to skin toxicity, you're also likely going to increase the response rate to the monoclonal antibody therapy. I don't know if this really matters that much, but where were these patients? Where was the study done? All of the authors are European authors. They look like they come from a variety of different countries. I recognize Dutch, Norwegian, and Italian individuals among the co-authors. Can you talk about what they found? Well, what they found was that about 90 of the 166 patients who were enrolled didn't have the skin toxicity on the standard dose, so they were randomized to get an increase in their doses or to stay on the same dose. So there were about 45 patients in each arm of the escalation phase or staying on the same dose who were compared. And the findings were actually very interesting in that the response rate increased dramatically in the patients who had dose escalation up to a response rate of 34%, while those who didn't have a dose escalation had about 10% response rate that we've come to associate with cetuximab in this setting. And therefore, this may actually be a useful strategy. Now, one of the other concerns, of course, is because we all know that cetuximab causes a risk for anaphylaxis, does giving more cetuximab increase the risk? And that was not seen. People, I think, either have the reaction or not. And at least in my experience, they get it early if they're going to get it. And so dose escalation really didn't matter in that regard. Does it sort of make sense to you that, I mean, it seems obvious, but that increasing the dose would increase the amount of rash? And in fact, is that what they saw? That is what they saw. The patients who had an increased rash had a higher likelihood of response, and the patients who had an increased dose had a higher likelihood of rash. 
Do you think that this is sort of ready for prime time? Well, this is a very early study, but I think it points us in a direction that's worthy of further investigation. Would I do this in my practice? You know, I guess I would consider doing it. The honest truth is that the vast majority of patients who are treated in the second, third, fourth line setting with cetuximab don't derive a benefit from it and also don't have a lot of other options. And so this may be one way of trying to exploit the value of this agent. Now, of course, this is a very expensive drug. And while in America, in insured patients, the cost isn't so much of an issue, for uninsured patients or for patients elsewhere in the world where socialized medicine is common or where patients are fronting the cost for therapy out of their own pocketbooks, it may become more of an issue. The next paper was presented by Len Saltz on the so-called 66 trial. Can you talk about that? This is a trial conducted mainly in Europe and in Canada in which patients were randomly assigned to Folfox or Zelox and then also were double randomized to bevacizumab or not. And the dose of bevacizumab was 5 milligrams per kilogram with the Fulfox because it's given every two weeks. The dose of bevacizumab was 7.5 milligrams per kilogram when given with the Zelox because that's given every three weeks. And patients who didn't get bevacizumab were treated with an identical appearing placebo so that the study was double-blinded. This study had been reported at ESMO, and so we had a preview of its findings. And the preview raised a fair amount of consternation. And what I mean by that is that we had come to expect from the results of the Hurwitz trial that adding bevacizumab to an IFL platform resulted in a 4.5-month increase in median time to progression. The progression-free survivals in this analysis were combined so that both bevacizumab arms were put together so the pool data looked at Zeloxbev plus Fulfoxbev and compared it to either Zelox or Fulfox without the bevacizumab. And the overall difference in progression-free survival was 1.3 months. So the bevacizumab arms had a 9.3-month progression-free survival compared to 8 months for the non-bevacizumab-containing regimens. And while this was statistically significant with a p-value 0.002, it was, in, frankly, quite disappointing to people who hoped that instead of going up from 8 to 9.3, we'd see progression-free survival go from 8 to 12 or 13 months. And so people asked themselves, why is this? And one theory would be, well, bevacizumab affects arenotecan-containing regimens and prolongs progression-free survival more effectively with that companion. Another theory that I actually favor as the explanation is that as one gets beyond six months of treatment with oxaliplatin-containing regimens, patients begin to come off of the oxaliplatin because of neurotoxicity. And therefore, it isn't clear that patients were getting chemotherapy along with their bevacizumab for as long as they could have. And in fact, Lensalt's presented data that most patients who stopped oxaliplatin stopped all chemotherapy, which was contrary to the protocol specifications. However, I think that this actually reflects one of the challenges of practice in the use of oxaliplatin in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. The drug is active enough that its activity continues beyond six months, but it's toxic enough that many patients can't take it beyond that time interval. 
So the stop-and-go strategies and the changing of regimens without progression has become a challenge to interpreting certainly clinical research data on such patients. I guess the other thing is this question of if you're going to stop the oxaliplatin, do you continue the fluoropyrimidine and the bevacizumab? And I think that that was one of the important lessons of this trial and that the answer to that is that yes, you should. We all know from the third arm of the Giantonio second-line study that bevacizumab by itself really is not active. And so I think that the finding in this of importance is that the patients who couldn't tolerate oxaliplatin anymore should have stayed on either Zolota or 5-fluorouracil with leucovorin. And I guess we don't know, too, how many of these might have been situations of docs giving complete treatment holidays without toxicity, or do we know that? You know, I also don't think we really know the numbers for that as well. I guess there's always a challenge to try to compare results from different trials. But in the Hurwitz IFL-BEV trial, did they continue therapy until they progressed? Yes, they did. Including the arena-TCAN? Including the arena-TCAN, unless it was removed for toxicity purposes. And in that case, would they keep the 5-FU and BEV going? Yes. So that's that same strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what do you think these two studies mean, about some of the comments that Neil Maripol made in terms of the discussion? Neil also was a little concerned about the approach of not continuing therapy and pointed that out. He also supported the evaluation of these regimens in clinical trials such as this rather than just intercalating them into our clinical practice without knowing the data. Right. One other thing about this trial was the fact that the response rate didn't increase with the addition of the BEV. That was also a surprise. As you remember in the Hurwitz trial, the response rate went up by about 10%. And in this trial, the response rates were really identical whether or not the patient got bevacizumab. It's a little bit hard to interpret that. You know, is that evidence that bevacizumab isn't as good a partner for oxaliplatin regimens, that perhaps oxaliplatin as a smaller molecule than renotecan diffuses more easily into tumors and it doesn't matter whether the interstitial pressure is higher. I don't think we have a good explanation for it. Does this mean in my practice that I'm going to go back to fulfiribev as first-line therapy instead of using fulfoxbev? Not on the basis of this trial. Do you think it could be explained by just something about the way the study was conducted? It's always best to think about studies when you have an entire manuscript and can really look at the details. You know, the abstract that was presented didn't reflect the presentation that was given because the data matured somewhat between times. And, of course, in a 10-minute presentation, you can only highlight some of the points about a big trial like this. Well, I'd like to ask you about the next presentation, which was a pretty interesting experience for me. (laughs) Well, this was clearly the highlight of the entire meeting, (laughs) to see Neil Love, who usually is the impresario of oncology up there, presenting data to nearly 3,000 people. That was pretty interesting. I thought that this was a really very interesting piece of research and was something that the oncology community deserved to hear. I was on the program committee and have to admit that I was one of the proponents for presenting this as one of the few presented abstracts. And the reason I thought it was important is because it gets to the observed differences between the way breast oncologists manage similar issues in adjuvant therapy and GI oncologists manage them. And, of course, in private practice, the breast oncologists are usually the same people as the GI oncologists, and 
One might ask the question why they think differently about colorectal cancer than they perhaps do about breast cancer. I guess you're referring to the fact that I guess we began by showing some of our patterns of care work, which showed that for the same risk of recurrence, docs in practice are much more likely to use chemo and breast and colon. And we looked at 10% recurrence, 20%, 30% low risk for recurrence. They were much more likely to use chemo for breast. Right. And, you know, I've heard some people say, well, that's because in one case you're dealing with women and in one case you're dealing with men, but half of colorectal cancer patients are women as well. And so I don't think that this is something that is heavily skewed because this disease affects both genders. And in fact, in this study, I think the majority of patients were actually women, weren't they? Right. There were two-thirds women and one-third men. And basically, we've managed to find 150 people who'd gotten adjuvant chemo for colorectal cancer in the last five years. And then you also surveyed 150 oncologists. Right. That was the oncology part of it. But for the patient part, I guess the two main things, and I was curious about your reaction, was that one... We presented them with theoretical scenarios where modest risk of improvement, and we found that about a third of these people would go through chemo again for a 1% reduction in relapse rate, although on the other hand, we found 10 or 12% of them who wouldn't go through chemo even for a 1 in 10 improvement. So sort of a spectrum of how people respond to that situation. Any thoughts about that? Well, I suspect that that was related to specific toxicity issues, that the individuals who found the adjuvant experience to be worse than what they expected. Right. Because we kind of patterned this all this breast study survey that was done 20 years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of biases in how you do that. These people have already chosen to get chemo, that most of them are free of disease. But it was just more sort of an awareness-raising thing about this. And I mean, do you think that sort of what we found reflects reality, whether it's 30% or 15%, that there's a segment of the population with colorectal cancer who's kind of like what we think about with breast cancer, wants treatment even for modest benefits? I think this is very important for illustrating that. And, you know, I'm often asked, what do I recommend to stage two patients? What I recommend to stage two patients is I give them the data on the benefit as we understand it for chemotherapy versus observation in this setting, point out that the majority of patients are cured before they ever take the chemotherapy and that our current state of the art doesn't allow us to discern between who's cured as they sit in front of us and who needs the treatment. And it also doesn't illustrate to us who's going to benefit from the treatment. And then I let the patient make a choice. I try and describe the toxicity to them, and I try and describe the benefit. And I don't try and make a value judgment on whether what I can deliver to them is worth their while to take. How often do you see patients who want treatment even for modest benefits? Well, my opinion has always been that patients often will do a life table analysis in their heads. And I 70-year-old patient will say, you want to treat me for six months for a 2 or 3% improvement in cure rate when my cure rate's already 75 to 80%, and they won't like that equation. And meanwhile, if you have a 35 or 40-year-old person, they'll say, well, you know, I might gain 50 years of life for a six-month investment, and that's probably worth it for me. It's interesting. So you think it's age-related? I think a lot of the times it is, and, you know, some of it is clearly personality-related, too. There are those of us who are risk takers and those of us who aren't. And I'm not sure whether the risk taker in this circumstance would be more likely to take the chemo to reduce the risk of recurrence or to take the risk of recurrence and not take the chemo. Right. The other thing that we presented was that we found that quite a number of patients, more than half, 
told us that what they experienced with adjuvant chemotherapy was quite different than what they expected and that they were surprised when they didn't have nausea, vomiting, and hair loss. Any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I present that to people. You know, I tell them that we're going to pre-treat them for nausea, but that people rarely have nausea. However, we'd rather over-treat them than let them get sick. I also tell them that it's exceptional for people getting infusional 5-FU-based regimens and oxaliplatin to get hair loss, but it occurs occasionally. And then I focus more on the neutropenia and the neuropathy issues. I'm sure that's what most oncologists and oncology offices are telling patients. I guess one question is, do you think what we found is really true? And if it is, because our thought was that maybe they're hearing stuff from friends or relatives or other patients. Well, and I think that there's a bias that chemotherapy equals hair loss because those are the memorable experiences that we have with our friends and family and the subtleties of the fact that it's only some chemotherapies that do that can be lost on people. Let's talk about the next paper, which came out of the EORTC, looking at hepatic injury after chemotherapy with oxaliplatin-containing regimens. Well, I also thought this was a very interesting observation, that patients were noted to have several different kinds of hepatic injury. You know, we often think of the steatosis, or fatty infiltration of the liver, as the most common finding. Obviously, European patients may not be as portly as us Americans and would have less of a problem with steatosis at baseline. But a lot of what was found in this was really hepatitis rather than steatosis with sinusoidal lesions that became increasingly more severe in some patients with time. And so the finding in this study in which all patients were treated with a Fulfox regimen was that it was more likely to be observed as patients got six cycles of therapy. The sensory neuropathy seemed to be collated with the steatohepatitis, but preceded it. And so, you know, I think our practice of being less tolerant of sensory neuropathy and discontinuing the oxaliplatin is likely to be beneficial not just to the nerves, but also to the liver. What was your take in terms of the implications of this in terms of the patient who's going for hepatic resection? I think that the data that's been presented by our colleagues at MD Anderson which has a large experience as an institution in doing resections after chemotherapy are useful in this, and that they've really found that chemotherapy does not generally interfere with surgical therapy. Now, one thing that they did note was that the oxaliplatin-related lesions are more steatohepatitis, and the arenotecan-related liver changes are more likely to cause a fatty liver. And actually, the steatohepatitis is an easier management problem for the liver surgeon than is the steatosis. I guess the other potential implication would be to a patient who's going to receive oxaliplatin that has some other disease process. Right. Uh, so if know. somebody already had underlying hepatitis C or right, exactly. already had underlying alcoholic cirrhosis, exactly. additional liver injury might give you pause. Again, anything from this study to say, well, this kind of predisposing factor might be worse combined with oxali or another one? You know, I don't really take it as that. I take it that this is another finding that there are more toxicities than we're necessarily aware of when you carefully look. But is this going to change my practice? At this stage, I would say probably not, other than perhaps to be, again, vigilant for the neuropathy as a potential indicator of also hepatopathy. Quick question about changing practice. I'm just curious what your take was in general 
about the research information that came out in colorectal cancer at this ASCO GI Cancer Symposium. Do you think this was sort of a low year average or good? There were not any GWIS results from my perspective at this particular edition of the GI Symposium. Oh, I thought there were a lot of really good posters, which we'll get to in a minute, but really interesting stuff. But there certainly was no triumph like the oh, presentation of the Hurwitz trial. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. The last paper that was in the oral session was another paper from Memorial about PET scanning. Can you talk about that? Yes. You know, I think PET scanning was a topic of a number of different presentations at this meeting, and we're still learning how to use it. In colorectal cancer, I think it's clear that PET scanning does have a role in staging patients who are being considered for hepatic surgery in that it can change the approach to these patients if peritoneal disease or distant lymph node disease is noted. And so I think that has become important. There was a very interesting abstract presented from Memorial on esophageal cancer, which showed that PET scanning could predict whether or not somebody was responding to preoperative chemotherapy and radiation by day 14, and that those who didn't respond by PET criteria were unlikely to have a pathologic complete remission. Now, we don't have that data in colon erectile cancer as of yet, but I think that the upper GI investigations have suggested some potential studies for lower GI as well. Interesting. So you want to talk about this paper specifically? One of the great challenges in the age of liver resection is to try and discern who's going to benefit from the surgery. Even though the surgery's gotten safer as the techniques have improved, it's still a big operation and it potentially has complications that can even be lethal. And so you only want to use it when it's likely to help somebody. The individuals at Memorial, particularly Human Fong, in a very important paper published in 1999 in the Annals of Surgery, looked at their experience with 1,000 patients and gave us data in there about prognostic factors such as number of metastases, size of metastases, whether the metastases were synchronous or metachronous, the use of CEA all combined into a prognostic index. And I think that this work in PET scanning adds another criteria to the prognostic index. And by that, I mean that if the PET scan shows extra hepatic disease, the potential to benefit from hepatic surgery does seem to be less. I guess also she showed some pictures and examples just getting a better look inside the liver help you know identify some people who might not be technically resectable. Right. You know, it's always a challenge when surgeon goes in expecting to have two or three liver lesions and finds liver lesions that are dispersed throughout the liver that are unresectable. And if you could get a hint of that before you open the abdomen, it certainly would be an advantage. Has it been your policy to do PETs on people before they're having hepatic resections? Yes, we do do that at the University of North Carolina pretty much as a routine. And have you found on patients where it really made a big difference in terms of making them unresectable? Absolutely. There have been times when we've derailed our plans for surgery. I mean, it's kind of something that sounds intuitively correct, but I mean, there's costs associated with it. it was kind well, of but there's certainly costs associated with the OR in terms of both dollars and influence on quality of life. Yeah, in terms of what the patient's going through. But I thought it was kind of cool that they just went ahead, even though, you know, intuitively it makes sense, that they went ahead and basically proved it. Yep. Okay, let's talk about some of the posters. And, you know, we could just like imagine we're walking down poster lane, you know, and different posters pop out at us in no particular order. So why don't we just chat about a bunch of them? Okay. 
Let's begin with poster number 343. This abstract is data from the so-called FIRST BEAT study, which is a study looking at almost 2,000 patients with metastatic colorectal cancer from 41 countries enrolled between 2004 and 2006. And these patients were all treated with first-line chemo of the investigator's choice, along with bevacizumab until disease progression. Now, this particular report focuses on the 81 patients from among those 2,000 who had metastatic lesions resected after initiating chemotherapy. All got BEV, some got Fulfox, some Fulfiri, and some Zelox. And most of the patients had liver resection. So essentially what this study showed was that there was really very little increased risk of bleeding. One patient had intraoperative bleeding out of the 83 One patient had some unspecified wound healing complications. Five patients had incisional infections, and 14 had complications not directly related to the incision. So the conclusions were that essentially if you stop bevacizumab six to eight weeks before major surgery, you can get through the major surgery without a risk of dramatic increase in wound healing problems or in bleeding. That's been my observation in clinical practice as well. I thought it was a useful bit of information, but not a surprising one. Do you want to talk about the next paper? The Van Cutsum Bev with first line, Fulfox, Capox, Fulfiri. It's abstract number 346. Essentially, this was using the same first beat group of patients that were analyzed previously. So this is the first beat trial again. And it was looking at preliminary safety and efficacy when bevacizumab was added to three different 5-FU-based regimens, Fulfox, Zelox, and Fulfiri. Again, about 1,900 patients enrolled. And the main issue was what were the incidents of some of the toxicities that have been associated with bevacizumab. The bottom line is that they were relatively low. Bleeding was about 2%. GI perforation occurred in about 2% arterial thromboembolism in about 1%. And you'll recall that there was an abstract by Skillings, which also is a paper now, in which it was noted that patients who were over 65 and had a prior history of arterial thromboembolism had about a 20% likelihood of another thromboembolism if treated with bevacizumab. Now, these patients were treated after that data was known, and presumably patients who were at high risk were excluded, and there weren't very many thromboembolisms. And then hypertension that was severe affected about 4% of patients, and there were very few wound healing complications. So the bottom line on this one is that in this less rigorously selected group of patients, toxicity was still manageable with bevacizumab and a variety of chemotherapy regimens. Can you talk about paper 334 that Andre et al. presented? Sure. This was a phase two study of cetuximab plus Fulfox-4 in first-line treatment of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. And it was actually an international collaboration. I think that we're trying to figure out how best to deploy cetuximab in earlier lines of therapy than the indications for which it was approved in second and third line. And what this study showed was that compared to the usual 50% response rate that we've come to expect with Fulfox, when you gave Fulfox plus cetuximab, the response rate was augmented to 72%, admittedly in a phase two study. The other thing of interest was that the progression-free survival looked like it went up by about four months, and the median overall survival in the patients enrolled in the study was a very impressive 30 months which is about double what you'd expect with some of the Fulfox or other combination regimens. 
So I think that this lends support to the trials like the 80405 CLGB SWOG study that's being done that looks at full FOX or full FERI plus cetuximab, bevacizumab, or both. Can you talk about poster 336 that was presented by Peters about panitumumab? Yes, this was a pool data analysis of five clinical trials in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer who'd been treated with panitumumab. And it confirmed what we saw from the pivotal panitumumab trial, that is that the objective response rate for monotherapy with the monoclonal antibody panitumumab is about 10%, that an additional approximately 20 to 30% of patients have disease stabilization, and that it about doubles the median progression-free survival from what you'd expect with best supportive care in this setting. So I think it confirms that this is an active agent as a single agent, and certainly whets our appetite for applying it with combination chemotherapy in earlier stages of disease. Can you talk about what they reported in terms of infusion reactions? Yeah, the infusion reactions with the fully humanized panitumumab are much less frequent than they are with the mouse monoclonal cetuximab. In this particular study, the incidence of infusion reactions were in the low single digits, and have a paper that we've submitted in talking about the experience at both Vanderbilt, Sarah Cannon, and University of North Carolina, where we're seeing severe anaphylactic reactions to cetuximab in the range of 25 to 30%. And I think there's another poster here that reported something similar that we'll talk about. Right. But in this case, what I see here is two out of 762 people who had grade 3 reactions and zero grade 4. Right, and I think that that may become a very important indicator of choice for oncologists as they decide which of the monoclonals to use. Certainly in North Carolina, huh? Yes. There were a bunch of papers that came out, as we've already discussed, in the Bright study. Can you talk about paper 345? I thought it was interesting in terms of your interest in the elderly. Right, well, you know, I have been an advocate for being sure that we don't undertreat elderly patients, particularly the fit elderly who stand to benefit just as much as younger patients do from appropriate therapy. What this study did was to look at the experience in the elderly for bevacizumab. As you know, bevacizumab has been linked to arterial thrombotic events, and one of the risk factors is being above the age of 65, at least established by retrospective review from the Hurwitz trial. What this study did was look at approximately 2,000 patients, about 900 of whom were over the age of 65, and compared their toxicity issues. Essentially, what was found was that while GI perforation was rare, it was 1% in those under 65 and 2% in those over 65. Wound healing complications were rare and not increased in the older patients. Bleeding was also rare and not increased in the older population. The arterial thrombotic event, paradoxically in this patient cohort, affected more younger people than older people, 2.2% in the less than 65-year-olds and 1.3% in the older than 65-year-olds. Another very important finding is that there was absolutely no difference in the progression-free survival. Comparing the younger to older patients. Correct. And that really ties into everything else that we've come to think about in this arena, I think. I would agree that this confirms my bias that you shouldn't deny patients who are older appropriate therapy. And I guess a similar thing came out in a paper that was sort of right down the way, 349, looking at an older patients in terms of panitumumab. Any comments on that paper? Only that it confirms the same findings. All right, okay. 
350 was another panatumumab paper by Randy Heck looking at epidermal growth factor levels. You want to talk about that? So this study is a fairly simple study that confirms in a phase two study about 189 patients that patients who do not overexpress the epidermal growth factor receptors still can respond to a monoclonal antibody directed at the epidermal growth factor receptor, in this case panitumumab. So in this group of patients, partial responses occurred in anywhere from 6 to 14%, depending on the amount of EGFR that was noted. But even patients who had less than 1% of cells marking for EGFR and immunohistochemistry sometimes responded to treatment. And I guess that's pretty well the conclusion that we have with cetuximab also at this point? Correct. Anything coming down the pike, report of this meeting or otherwise, that shows any encouraging signs about trying to find something to predict response to cetuximab other than the rash or panitumumab? Well, there's an abstract that's further on that looks at EGFR level, EGFR gene copy number, abstract 427. What did they find? So in abstract 427, they looked at EGFR by immunohistochemistry, by fish analysis, looking at gene copy number. They also looked at KRAS mutation and P10 expression to predict whether patients would respond to cetuximab based on the status of those three markers together. And their conclusions were that patients who had KRAS mutations and loss of expression of P10 protein did not tend to get a benefit from cetuximab. So this helped to predict who wouldn't benefit, but did not really predict who would benefit. Can you talk about the paper from Memorial looking at infusion time of BEV number 355? Sure. In this paper, the investigators from Memorial Sloan Kettering theorized that you didn't need to give bevacizumab over 90 minutes, but could give it in a shorter time period. And what they essentially showed with this study was that 90 and 60 minute initial infusion times are really unnecessary. And they actually use a standard infusion rate of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. So in the average U.S. patient, that would probably be somewhere around 35 milligrams a minute, which would mean that you could get your doses in quite fast. What have you been doing in your own practice? We have been speeding up our infusions for bevacizumab. Is there sort of a rule of thumb for people to go by at this point? Well, I think that this is the best data that we have on it, and so a 0.5 milligram per kilogram per minute infusion rate is something that I think is reasonable. There was another really practical paper that came out of a memorial also, number 357, looking at the issue of antihistamine premedication for cetuximab. you want to comment on that? Well, it's interesting to theorize whether antihistamines do anything to reduce the likelihood of cetuximab reaction. Now, when Len Saltz and I discuss cetuximab reactions, he's essentially never seen a severe one. And It's unusual for a week to go by in our clinic without somebody getting stat page to the infusion room to help deal with the reaction. And we've actually gone to the point where we're seeing so many reactions, we have a physician's assistant sit with patients during the first half hour of their first injection. It seems like this is an all-or-nothing phenomenon, that people who are sensitized to whatever it is that makes them react to cetuximab have vigorous and even anaphylactic reactions quickly and regardless of pretreatment. Now, we still give antihistamine, pretreatment, steroids, and an H1 antagonist to all of our patients, but we're still having a very high frequency of reactions despite that. So can you talk about what they reported here and whether that has an influence over what you're doing? 
Well, what they reported was that they gave about 4,000 non-premedicated doses of cetuximab, and after the first or second infusion, that saw no benefit whatsoever to using Benadryl as a premedication. Does that have any effect on you in terms of what you would be doing? We still give the Benadryl. I don't think it does any good. Another poster that came out of the Bright study was number 364, looking at hypertension with Bev. Right, so what this study showed was of about 2,000 patients enrolled in this registry, almost 850 had hypertension that required some sort of antihypertensive medicine. And the frequency of increased hypertension seemed to be dependent on the intensity of the bevacizumab treatment, on whether or not the patients were getting aggressive management of hypertension before they got started, and what specific antihypertensive treatments they were getting. So it appears that most people are using either angiotensin inhibitors or beta blockers in managing these patients, and that both can be used effectively. What were your thoughts about paper number 374, looking at the survival of patients with rectal cancer based on how they responded to pre-op therapy? This was a study in which 76 patients were treated with a combination of 5-FU and radiotherapy preoperatively for rectal cancer. And it looks again at the issue of response at the time of surgery and its ability to predict outcomes. And what this essentially showed is that both the relapse-free survival and overall survival of patients correlated better with response to pre-op chemo rads than it did to original staging. So what that means is that regardless of whether patients were N0 or N1, if they had excellent responses, including pathologic complete remissions to preoperative therapy, the response trumped the initial staging. Have we seen this looked at before, and what was seen? We have seen correlations of complete response to a better outcome, but we've never really seen it compared on a stage-by-stage basis like this. How about paper 375, which was another paper out of the Bright study, a source of tremendous amount of information on the use of BEV in community practice, this time looking at survival of patients? In this study, which analyzed the patients enrolled in the Bright registry for tumor-related outcome measures like progression-free survival and overall survival, the outcomes were similar to what would have been expected based on the pivotal trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That is that patients had a progression-free survival of about 10.6 months, which I think is exactly what Hurwitz reported, and a median overall survival that exceeded two years, which is even a little better than what Hurwitz reported I suspect that that may be in part explained by the use of infusional 5-FU-based regimens rather than bolus 5-FU-based regimens so that the bevacizumab is deployed on a better platform of chemotherapy. Now, in this Sprite registry, did they specify how the therapy would be given, or is it just sort of an observational thing? I think it's mainly an observational study in that some of the patients got full FOX, some got full FURY, and some got IFL. Because we were talking before about the potential impact of stopping everything as opposed to continuing the BEV and fluoropyrimidine. Do we know what happened in the Bright Registry? I suspect that the data collection was not as precise as it is in prospective clinical trials. So right. I don't think we do know the answer to that. Well, I guess it's encouraging that they're seeing the same kind of outcomes that were reported in the studies. Agreed. What about paper number 386 touching into this issue of infusion reaction? You know, this paper comes out of a clinical experience with monoclonal antibody therapy, 
and looks at both cetuximab and rituxan as delivered in clinical setting. There actually were more patients who got rituximab than who got cetuximab, 57 versus 38. But even with that, there were severe infusion reactions that occurred in about five patients total, two on cetuximab, three on rituxan. They were a big issue in terms of scaring the patient, scaring the practitioners, and taking up a lot of clinical time. Our own experience is that we often end up admitting these patients for overnight observation because we're always worried that when the initial epinephrine wears off, the patients are going to have some sort of a re-exacerbation of their symptoms. So this is a real problem. It's interesting that this comes out of Memphis, Tennessee, in terms of the geographic area that seems to be more affected. They reported 32% of patients receiving cetuximab having infusion reactions. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's not that far away from what we're observing in our practice as well. Amazing. Anything else you want to say about this? Well, we have an abstract into the main ASCO meeting that talks about this. And one of the questions that we ask in that abstract is whether or not it may be related to a history of atopic personality. Hmm. And you'll have to come by and look at our poster or listen to our presentation to find the answer to that question. That's interesting. Although, again, you wonder why would that be different in different parts of the country? Well, the theory that I've talked to Len Saltz about is that in Manhattan, the vermin are rats, and in (laughs) North Carolina, the vermin are mice, and so maybe uh, if it was a rat monoclonal antibody, he'd see more reactions.